Hello, this is Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Lori Zimmett, Director of Academic Support at UC Hastings, about what law professors expect on an exam and how to prepare for exams. episode, I speak with Professor Lori Zimmett, Director of the Academic Support Program at UC Hastings College of Law. She talks about getting inside the professor's psyche. Specifically, what's the professor looking for, and what frame of mind is a professor in when grading your exam? It's an enlightening conversation. Before we get started, a reminder, these podcasts are completely free. The only thing we ask is if you like them, it would be great if you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And toward that end, since they're free, we're on a very modified budget. And I apologize in advance, particularly on this one, for a little sound issue. We did the best we could. So I begin by speaking with Professor Zimmett about her probability theory, meaning professors who can't possibly test on all the information that's imparted during a semester go on the theory that if you can answer a question on one particular doctrinal concept, you can probably reason your way through all of the other doctrinal concepts that the professor didn't ask. So here's my discussion with Professor Zimmett. I am so excited to have you and to have you talk about exam writing, and I have to say that I will not say how many years ago when I was first getting into academic support, you were my guru, um, you blazed the way you started the academic support movement. So we really have a real rock star with us on this one. So tell me, um, it's exam season, students are getting stressed out about exams. I always say it's okay to be a little stressed. Let's talk a little bit about what professors are expecting of students during the exams and exam period. I think part of it is understanding what the purpose of the exam is, who their audience is, that is who the, the role of the reader of what they're like and where they are to understand how to write it, mm-hmm. and then to also understand um, their own role on an exam. And so I would start out with students really clearly understanding what the purpose of the exam is, because it can be very different than what they're doing in class. Okay. Um, notice in class that we're often um, watching the development of law, case, 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 um, or they're comparing and contrasting some cases to each other, or they're just watching it historically develop. Mm-hmm. But they don't ask on an exam question, trace the chronological development of the law, or right. compare the Zimmet case, my last name, <laughs> with the Leslie case. Right. They don't do that. So they will give a fact problem. And here's the deal. This is the thing that will change students' lives once they understand what's really expected of them. And the exam, like the bar exam, okay. is based on a probability theory. That is, they know, you know, the students know too much to test. By the end of the first couple of weeks, there was too much minutiae to test. Right. So your professor, their professor, will end up selecting certain parts of their course this year mm-hmm. for this exam, mm-hmm. and they'll put facts on in a hypothetical or multiple choice to See if the students can spot this year what is being tested. That is, under the probability theory, too much to test. If you spot what they're testing this year because there's too much, then the probability is they could have tested you. You would have known what else they haven't tested. Next year's group will have your exam, the student's exam, as a practice exam. And under the probability theory is, for next year's group, they could have done as well on your exam. So the bottom line for students to understand is it won't help them to shovel lots of extra law 
or extra analysis unless there's facts there that the professor is testing. The professor is in charge of deciding what he or she wants to test, and they'll put facts on there. And if the student can address those, and I say, don't show off. Don't show off with all the law you know and everything you've learned, because that's not the point of this exam. Two things resonated with what I like to say is get out of your undergraduate head. So to the point that you made in the beginning about how um, how professors want students to explore facts, and to the point that you made at the end, which is don't show off, those are the kind of things that students do in undergraduate school, right? They try to memorize everything and spit it all out. So you make really good points. A, memorizing everything isn't going to do you every good because a professor can't possibly test you on everything, right? How does probability play a role in expectations from the professor? Sure. The professor will have a... um your professor will have a rubric, all of us do, and it's up to your professor if they want out of five points, 100 points, 500 points, 1,000. It's totally up to your professor how he or she wants to have a numeric attached. Either it's holistic, on a smaller number, or it's very point allocated. And the bottom line is your professor this year has picked certain parts of your um, outline. That's what I think. All I think about your exam is which one, and I'm gesturing now with my hands moving toward me, like which ones this year are you testing, Prof? Which right. ones this year are you That's testing? That's a great visual. I'm sorry no one can see yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, which ones this year are you testing so that I can answer those and only those, analyze them, make my arguments. But if I do that, then the probability is had they asked something else, I would have probably been able to answer that. And that's the bar. They can't test all the subjects. They can't test everything in each subject. They will give us certain things with facts this year. And if we analyze those and answer those, then the probability is we could have answered all the other areas. And as I said, next year's class, the probab- they'll have a different exam, and the probability for them would be they could have answered your exam as well. So if students understand that they're moving into an um, area that is really about um, their, their professor. And that's the thing, I mean, I, from my perspective, it's one of the few areas of my life that I get to say it's all about me mm-hmm. as your professor. Not <laughs> about you, not what you want to share, not what you want to tell me, not what you want to let I know that you learned. It's none of that. I have certain facts. I would move into understanding then who your professor is because I've put certain facts on that exam and it's about me. And so let me tell you a little bit about your professor who's grading. It's the same as a judge. It's the same as a busy reader. Right. Can I move in there? All right. Yes. Yes. So here's the deal. I want you to picture your professor where they are grading your exam. I just want you to picture. First of all, I'd ask, what time of season is it always when professors are grading your exams? What time of season? It's the holidays. Right. It's always. It's either summer break or winter break. Right. And I want you to picture where your professor is. He or she is in their den, their office, and there's a glass window in front of them. And outside are their trees, and there's a little deer wandering around. (laughs) Behind them are the holidays, whatever your spiritual or religious or non. Behind you are the the decorations for whatever's going on. If it's summer, the flip-flops are there, or the T-shirts are there, or whatever. The beach ball is there. And there's good smells. There's great food behind them, smelling it. And they've got, think about it, what's in front of them, around them? Your 80 exams or 40 exams or 30 exams, and I'm telling you, your busy reader, all she, he wants to do is go kind of say hi to the deer 
and go join their family. Now, here's the deal. When you picture your professor with their rubric page that has the issues they've wanted to, for you to spot and the calculations of how much each is worth and what you needed to put in this exam based on those facts. And they have your 40 exams and they have a grade sheet either to give back to you or for their own purposes. And I want you still to think about this. Next to the professor, right below where their chair is, there is a small child with their arms around the leg and a dog on the other side. And every time the professor looks at your exam, they look down and the kid says, play. And the professor says, I'm working. And every time the professor looks down at the dog, the dog goes thump, 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 thump <laughs> with the tail. And so you've got a distracted reader. You've got somebody looking up and down at the, your exam. And so that tells you cosmetically what you want to put on that exam to make it easy for the reader to look up, to look down, and find the spots like bolding and underlining. The good thing for, I think, students to know, and this is really important, Leslie. Do I call you professor or professor? No, you call uh, me Leslie. That's fine, okay. whatever you want to. Um, this is really important. Is your professor like the bar is reading with you? And I, I just want to make sure students understand that. This is not somebody who's trying to nickel dime uh, and find all the wrong errors. All they want to do is get rid of your exam. They have a rubric. They're looking to check it off as quickly as they can, that you put it in an order that makes sense, that you spotted what they're asking. You can go on tangents, you know, wandering around to show them the law or talking, plopping down a bunch of facts. So the professor wants to read with you. They want your exam to go quickly like a judge would want to read your papers to be quickly. So they have, it, as they're reading it, they just want to look at their rubric and check it off as they're going organized, not a bunch of facts, not a vomit of law, just a nice organized exam per IRAC, as we can chat about at some point later. Um, and so the reader is reading with you. They're not looking for errors. And if they read on first page whatever the cause of action, crime, or defense that you're addressing or to legal topic, and then three pages later you're talking about a fact, oh, I forgot to write about the first page, the professor is not, you're not going to do as well because the professor is then going to have to flip around. Mm -hmm. They want to go through your exam quickly so they can get on to the next one and go back to their family or visit with the deer. And so if you organize it in a way that's like their rubric, like what they're testing, then they guess just get to check it off. When I've polled professors about what makes great exam answers, across the board, everybody says they're short, not long, they're succinct, and they're tight. They're just easy to read and check it off, not a lot of extra vomit of facts, vomit of law, want, oh, this issue could have been raised had you mentioned this fact, and the reader is thinking, I didn't mention that fact. It's adverse to the probability theory for you to be mentioning additional issues I did not test this year. You'll never have time to finish the exam if you go off on other issues that are not being raised by the facts. Plus, it goes against the probability. So your professor is reading with you, and you should feel really good because your exam will fall in between one or more of the cases that you've read. There are always some parts of your exam that will be in a gray area that you get to argue why it's similar or why it's different, and then there'll be other things that are kind of slam dunks. But nothing will be so outside your course that it has to relate to something in your class, and I think that's a great comfort. Yeah, in your class and what went on in your class. Now, I, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've shared a lot of information, and 
it's interesting how much it resonates with me as a professor. I teach contracts and I teach torts right now. And you're right. I mean, I don't have a little kid on my leg, but the reality is, and as you were saying, I'm thinking about students and their pull toward their friends and pull toward social media. You know, it's hard to stay, stay focused. And you really, mm. as a professor, we really do have to stay focused. But there's nothing like a warm, cuddly hug than a well-written exam mm. and one that really does make it reader friendly. And I do a lot of bar prep. I lecture for bar companies and I always say that about the bar, you know, they have, you know, 800 of these in three minutes to each one. Now, law professors obviously give it much more than three minutes. We give it, we give every single, and I know you know this, we give every single exam their due, but we'd rather give it a short due than a long due. And so do better on a short due that's complete yeah, versus right. an incomplete short Right. Due. And less is more. And I think that, again, this comes back to my theme, if I could, you know, talk about ego, yeah, make it about me, which is, <laughs> you know, again. get out of that undergrad head that you cannot because. And here's the thing is that any law that anyone needs to know when they're practicing is available to them at their fingertips. So as professors, we're not so concerned that they've memorized the law as much as we're concerned that they know what to do with the law once they've memorized it. Would you agree with that? Um, my thinking overall, overwhelmingly, is most students don't have most students don't have an exam writing problem. They have a pre-exam writing problem. They have organized the law as they have learned it the first way, which is what we talked earlier about case, case, case some lecture notes, and when they hit the exam, it's like ships in the dark. They can, t and this is so true, they can explain the law to other people generally, they can talk about the law as they do in class, but then they hit an exam with a hypo or multiple choice, and it's like ships in the dark. They knew the law generally, they could talk about it, but they haven't organized it in a way that they can apply it before the exam, before mm -hmm. the exam. Mm -hmm. So my own impressions over many, many exams, many thousands of them at this point, is that most students, I ha only on one hand, honestly, one hand, do I have the number of students who could not put a fact and rule together, or could not issue spot, or deal with ambiguity, make an argument. Only five students after all the number of students I've um, encountered. But m mostly, they they've organized the law the way it's been taught and it doesn't lend itself to being able to apply on an exam unless they rework their outline and organize it in a way that they can apply it and that means you're organizing it in a macro way the bigger concept and then the elements or tests or factors or sub issues or whatever it is across the legal of the curriculum across the law curriculum all of them are the same there's some broader concept, and then there's some elements or tests or rules or issues or factors or whatever mm -hmm. underneath them. Mm -hmm. And then each of those elements, which is where I think most law students go off, and lawyers in their legal papers, there's a sub-issue that has another sub-rule that may have a case that explains that particular sub-rule. And then the little application comes with the facts from the hypo to compare to that ruler case, but there's a series of little sub-IRACs mm -hmm. that go on in good legal analysis, and for folks to try to figure that out while they're taking the exam, as compared to having practiced a number of times before taking that exam, right. the importance of practice exams, to organize their outline so that they're ready to apply it. Equally, 
if we're talking about taking practice exams. I was going to ask you, uh, how does taking practice exams factor into this? Oh, my gosh. You know, the, the, Leslie, the, the really interesting thing about the practice exam is that at undergrad, this is keeping with your theme, the undergrad, we're never taught. I mean, when think about when you take an exam. You're never ready to take an exam. Right. You're never ready. You, you, you have to learn it, study it, and then you go into class and you take the exam. That's it. You're never ready to take the exam because you, there's always something else you can do, something else you can memorize, something else you can work on. In law school, it's the complete opposite. Taking practice exams is part of studying. No one goes into an exam and you can't say, oh, I'm not ready for the exam. I have to study more before I take a practice exam, which is most what most law students, I would say, and bar applicants do. They stay way too long in the law without having to practice in on hypos and, and test themselves either because it's scary or it's not part of the routine they learned from undergrad. What's want, the value? I'm but, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but that's, I want to repeat what you just said. That I have to think that is the biggest pearl of wisdom, which is they spend way what? too long studying. They spend way too long in the law, meaning they spend too much time learning and not enough time practicing. Yeah. Quite understandable. In undergrad, there was a real tendency not to look at you didn't have past exams, and exams were the final step between you and your grade. Never ready. But the in law school, as we said, um, taking practice exams is critical to see, and a number of things, reasons why we would use practice exams. And I would be quite deliberate and thoughtful about, I'm, using, I'm taking a practice exam for this particular purpose. I'm taking another practice exam for this particular purpose, or a series of them. The first thing you're going to do by taking a practice exam is see which parts of your outline are working and which aren't. I mean, that's just such a gift, hmm. such a gift. Hmm. Oh, the, the cluster of blah, 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 I could put the little IRACs in. I knew how to make arguments. I'm like swimming. I'm acing this class. And then I had no idea what to do with this other area. And so that gives you an opportunity to refine your outline. I hear people, students say, I'm going to have my outline done by Thanksgiving. And my own thinking is your outline is never done because you're taking practice exams all the way before the real exam and you're constantly fixing your outline that you're going to use on the real exam by taking practice exams and refining them. Okay, so that, that's a really good point that, especially for open book exams, you, take, you, you outline, you take a practice exam, you see what from the practice exam you used from your outline, and then you go back and you edit your outline. That's an excellent point. I thought about right. that. Okay. And Next. I would say it's not only for um, open book, but both closed book. We'll talk about memorization. I believe that the outline, because you're outlining your outline to outline your outline, because it's got to be short enough, even for an open book exam, to have like a table of contents to quickly check. And for closed book, it has to be capable of being memorized. Right. You'll use the practice exam <clears throat> to see which parts of your outline are working or not, and uh -huh. that's helpful. Um, you also, if, if the professor is kind enough to have a series of them or, or uh, has taught the course long enough, right. you might see some patterns of testable areas just to see how they test it. And I would annotate my outline with exact facts from other from past exams of the professor to show me how the professor has thought about it before. I wouldn't cite it because it's not authority. It's right. not the law of right. the class. But it sure would help me um, see how they're thinking about it. One of the critical reasons why you would do a um, practice exam, this is so important, okay. is time management. You don't want on the first time to be taking a real exam that's your grade. Come on, it's basically your grade. Right. Without practicing how much time it's going to take for you to actually answer those exams 
and practice getting comfortable um, allocating time for major issues, minor issues, and my God, when you hit a brick wall and you've realized, oh my God, they didn't die or they did die or whatever, <laughs> that you made a right. mistake. And then you can go back. So time management, how long does it take you? You don't want to do it for the first time. In fact, I would suggest if you're mindful and thinking, I'm going to take this practice exam to check my time, I would shave off 10 minutes off a question just to see what it's going to feel like and what you're going to do if you have not enough time. And then so it, it won't be the first time. So what do, you, I don't, what do you mean by shave off 10 minutes? Oh, I see. So if the exam, uh, if you have an exam that's a three-hour exam and one of those exam questions is an hour right. or two hours, right. I would take off 10 minutes of, so if I'm allocating an hour or two hours to take that question, whatever it is, I would take off 10 minutes in my writing time just to feel what it feels like to have additional pressure on me that I don't have enough time. In your practice. So, so give yourself 15 minutes to answer a one-hour question in practice. Just for the, okay. Not all of my practice exams. Yeah. Only no, for just, the point. Right. Yes, to be quite deliberate about how we're using the practice exams. Got it. One is to see how our outline is working. For that reason, I would do open outline. Even on a closed book exam, I would keep my outline open because whatever you're going to memorize will be your outline. Let's make sure it's in the right order. We'll talk about memorization in a minute, but practice exams in my mind, for this function, it's open outline, whether it's a closed book exam or an open book exam, right. just to see if the outline's working. Okay. Time management, use your outline to be able to see if you're able to answer the question timely and take off time so you're used to feeling what it's pressure. Go into the classroom. Ah, this is what I would suggest, Leslie. Um, it's a very big exam. You might get distracted. People are doing weird stuff. They're tapping. Their 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 knees are moving up and down. They're mm -hmm. shaking. They're groaning. They're crying. Whatever mm -hmm. they're doing in the exam. Mm -hmm. So go to a cafe, and for the purpose of having a lot of distractions to get used to it, go to a cafe where people are um, tapping and keys are moving and people may be crying or sobbing, just like the real thing. Um, so you get used to it. If you're thinking of earplugs, do not try to earplugs. On, your, on the real exam where your grade is based, you're like underwater. Go try them in, in different locations to see how it feels to do your um, your earplugs. So I'm gonna I'm gonna call that the Tiger Woods theory of exam taking because when Tiger Woods was a little boy, his yeah. father used to like throw balls at him and clap yeah, in his it. ear to distract him. It. That is uh, that's another pearl of wisdom, Laura. You are my necklace is filling up here. You're so brilliant. Good. Okay. And then finishing off with that. I would urge you to find the classroom where you're actually going to be taking it and go into the classroom as a practice exam before the exam and feel what it feels like to take that exam in the classroom. If this exam was worth 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60 70 maybe we're moving into 80 90 100 If it was lower, maybe I wouldn't be as serious about it. But it's almost your time grade. You've worked so hard. Mm-hmm. Go into the, into the classroom if you're able. Different schools will not let you, maybe let you. But go into the classroom and go practice it so nothing is surprising like right. you would do for the bar. You right. go to the location for the bar. Right. Let's talk a little bit about memorization, unless you've got a follow-up, Les. No, no. So one of the challenges for many students, and this is like you're not new as a student. You've had to memorize undergrad. So mm -hmm. there are things that you've done successfully undergrad to memorize, and I wouldn't let those go. I would be thoughtful about when have you been successful in remembering things that may not done. Didn't feel like you learned more um, in this semester 
uh, if your first year, if you remember, if you're, you're a second or third year, and if you're a first year listening, then you learned all your undergrad <laughs> years, just within the first semester, maybe even the first couple of months, right. because there is so much content. And so some suggestions for memorization. Um, one is remember that you're outlining your outline to, again, the pre-exam problem versus the exam writing problem. Your outline has to be put in an order that you could actually use it as a template as a checklist to organize an issue spot, right? We talked about that earlier. Right. Now it needs to be put into like maybe three to five pages. Maybe you have a couple columns on one page so you can see the whole thing in front of you mm-hmm. as a visual. Um, but the bottom line is it has to be short enough to memorize. That means for those of you who have 50 pages, 80 pages, they're still good if they're organized well. It just means functionally the outline now needs the point of being able to be capably memorized and you got to bring it down to being shorter. So all I can tell you with memorization is that memorization happens by repeating. It's constantly repeating the same concepts. For visual learners who picture things, you're thinking of the page, you're thinking of the color, you're thinking of the font, bold or or type of um, size of it. For those of you who are verbal or audio learners, my suggestion is that you um, dictate into an MP3 like your phone, and but you have to dictate, and then you listen to it back as you're commuting or as you're walking around, because for the audio learners, listening to it and repeating it verbally is helpful. The visual people may have a butcher block or some color or visual, and then there's tactile ones. Um, mm-hmm. Some people use mnemonics. I remember I had a study group in, at... Um, in, for the bar, and one of the people in the study group was so excited because she was going to do all the mnemonics for one subject, and she came in and she had like Harry Houdini or something, and H was for her husband's name, O was for her son's name, and I remember saying to her, blankety blank, are you kidding me? These work for you, but they certainly <laughs> work for me. So create your own mnemonics and have them fun for memory. I will give you one last advice about the value of the, of the exam, practice exams, value of the practice exam. Remember, we talk about having different functions yeah. for taking practice down, exams. Yeah. Um, the, one of the main functions of practice exams toward the end of your studying is to simply take one cold before memorizing or a bunch of multiple choice. Cold before you even go into the memory part. And we all remember more than we think and surprisingly parts that we would never even know that we knew. And if you teach, if you take your um, outline as if it's all the same, you're wrong. Your, mem- your memory, your mind remembers certain parts and doesn't remember others. If you take a practice exam or two or a bunch of multiple choice, it will show you right then. Not, it's not an indication of how you're going to do it. And we use practice exams to do better. Mm-hmm. But if you take a practice exam, it will immediately indicate, oh, my God, I remembered that fourth element. Are you kidding me? I never knew I knew that. But I couldn't, for the life of me, remember the other cluster or the other big issue. That will tell you what you have to study. And it's an efficient, effective way to really see what parts you have to um, memorize and which ones you can just skim over because you actually have a fair amount of retention of those areas. If I had to take all of your um, ideas and put them in one umbrella, it's basically that studying for exam is not linear. It's not you go to class, you make the outline, you do the practice test, you take the exam. It's that everything, it's almost more holistic. Everything has to work together. Take a practice exam, go back and edit your um, outline. Edit your outline, then go see if you can tell yourself the story in an MP3. 
you can make a podcast yep. even. Um, yeah. that's, and, and I think that's great. And, and all of this is done with an eye toward the strategy of who's reading it. And not, not who's reading it, it's my professor, you know, Professor Kingsfield. It's who's reading it and when they're reading it and who are they reading it up against. I agree with that. And the thing I would also just say, and I smile at this, um, when they ask a question like, you know, what are the rights and liabilities and defenses? Who owns Green Acre? Does mm-hmm. the court have jurisdiction? Whatever, you know, what crimes, if any, what defenses will they assert? Whatever they're asking, is the evidence admissible? Whatever they're asking, do not be literal. I have seen exams where um, students actually say, yes, it's admissible, and they almost actually say have a good holiday that is um the professor is asking you to um even though you think of your professor as knowing this law um you with whatever question they're asking this would be my bottom line whatever okay. question they're asking whatever facts are on that exam mm-hmm. those are the issues they're asking they're not literally asking the question many professors say they have to read the question read the call of the question and that's fine see if they're excluding murder or whatever but from my perspective if there's facts on the page, unless they're giving you red herrings, and some fact professors give you red herrings, to, the sky is blue. It has no place right, next to an argument right. or a cause of action. And, and, so, and, and I don't mean to interrupt, but and no, a, please. a red herring is where they throw in facts that have no relevance. No legal relevance. No legal relevance, yeah. To, okay. to see, if you, see if you can sort the facts that really do deal with your elements or your uh, your uh, law for that particular subject. Most professors do not do red herrings because the uh, the magnitude of reading your exams um, to have all these fake facts come in really uh, after a while professors I, I unless they're quite deliberate about this most of your professors all I can tell you is that almost all your facts on your page belong somewhere like I always say the facts are lonely on your page send them home <laughs> put them in a house and each of your areas are in neighborhoods that have houses and the rooms are the sub elements and send your the facts to the right home and it's creepy if you're in your parents room or your guardian's room put them in the right room put them in the right um the facts in the right element mm-hmm. um and let your uh let the facts not be lonely on the page and toward that end i would put an x on top but not through every fact i use some people have more than one homes they have families that have separated or whatever and some facts could go to more than one house murder man murder is one house manslaughter is another adverse possession is one house and so you might use it and then i would look at my facts as i'm has that i have that extra 10 minutes and i'll see more issues and i'll realize i missed a counter argument perhaps so my my best suggestion is to think of the facts as being lonely and for you to send them home everybody wants to go home whatever home means to you send the facts back to home to the right houses and then put them in the right rooms and when you miss the facts um, on the page try to figure out if you're missing an issue or you're missing a counter argument terrific thanks so much for giving me the time i really appreciate it so that's my discussion with professor Lori zimmett hope you enjoyed it as a reminder if there's a particular professor with whom you'd like us to speak or a topic you'd like us to address tweet us at lot of fact or email us at lot of fact at gmail.com Thanks, as always, to www.bensound.com for the music, and enjoy the rest of your day. Best of luck studying.